You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky. I'm your host, Jennifer, and tonight we are joined by our regulars, Chris and Jen. And our special guest tonight is Sarah Wilson. Sarah is a journalist, author, and activist. Her books include the New York Times bestsellers, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, I Quit Sugar, and 11 cookbooks that sell in 52 countries. Sarah was the founder and CEO of IQuitSugar.com, a health initiative that has helped millions worldwide break their sugar addiction. And in 2018, at the height of her company's success, Sarah decided to sell off the business and donate all the proceeds to charity. She now builds and enables charity projects that engage humans with each other and campaigns on mental health and climate issues. Sarah ranks as one of the top 200 most influential authors in the world and has a combined digital audience of 2.5 million. Sarah lives minimally, rides a hand-built bike, and is known for traveling the world for eight years in one ba- with one bag. Today, we're going to talk with Sarah about her latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life. This book is a soul's journey through the complexities of climate change, coronavirus, racial inequalities, and our disconnection from what matters back to life. Sarah hikes around the world, meeting wild, wild voices and experts who provide hopeful wisdoms and vibrant solutions to arrive at what she feels is the true path through the despair to our better world. Um, so Sarah, thank you for being on and um, talking about your book with us. I think we are all uh, really learned a lot and, and got a lot out of it this book. Um, as you said, it's kind of a self-proclaimed book of everything. Um, so I'd love to hear about what your inspiration was for writing the book. I know it was a three-year journey and you rewrote it several times, um, but what was your journey with that? Oh, thank you very much for that very kind intro. I was just thinking I need to shorten it. <laughs> it goes on, but I suppose, you know, you, when you're old, uh, your bio tends to be quite long. Um, My motivation, Jennifer, was um, essentially the climate crisis. And I felt that the warning signs or the information, the science, it wasn't getting through. It wasn't working. That that approach was just not seeing any pennies drop. Um, And my research, in fact, does find um, that the more science that is thrown at people, the more sort of carbon emission data that is thrown at people, it tends to cause even further polarisation between the denialists and then the activists. Um, And I just had this intuitive feeling that there was something else that was at play here that was preventing us from going into that space and pretty much doing everything that we can do to save this one wild and precious life on this planet together. Um, It stemmed also though from, I'd written a book, as you mentioned in that long bio, um, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, and it's about um, a journey, sort of a a reframing of anxiety, particularly sort of bipolar, obsessive compulsive disorder, but also generalised anxiety through a philosophical and spiritual lens. And what I found was that that was a very inward journey. And what I was finding in my climate activist work was there was too much inward. We need to go out into the world and be of service. This is a period in history where that is absolutely vital and so vital. I mean, it's existential. It's an existential calling that we are hearing. And um, I really felt a responsibility to take that journey outwards into the world. And as, you know, as the subtitle of the book goes, you know, find a hopeful path forward through this fragmentation, um, because we're going to have to find it and time is running out. Yeah, that's a, um, 
a really noble uh, reason to write a book. And I, I will say you did a great job of kind of bringing together all of our, I think, collective um, just apathy slash anxiety slash hopelessness and explaining it in a way that one shows that um, we're not alone in this journey and two, that, that there is a way to get through it and have hope, like you said. So um, I'm curious, Chris and Jen, what were your you know biggest takeaways? There's a lot of information in the book, but what is like one thing that you took out of it that is gonna change your life? <laughs> Um, I would just say for me, it was the, the call to action. I just felt really inspired to find my edge and just go, you know, push further. Um, I actually told the girls that I wanted to start a movement, like the ice bucket challenge. Like when I was reading your book, I was yeah, like, right. why have we not done this yet? Like, let's all figure out how to plant trees or something. Um, so yeah, we, we definitely tried to brainstorm some ideas and, and we can talk about that later, but yeah, I, I definitely got some, some motivation that I needed to, to get something started. That's awesome. Um, the go to the edge element, um, just for everyone listening who hasn't read the book, it's this idea of actually embracing the discomfort. And it's like, we have lived a life where we are so used to comfort. We think comfort is our God-given right. Um, and we've been cocooned by technology that stops us from even having to be uncertain as to when our pizza, takeaway pizza is going to arrive at our doorstep because there's an app that tells us exactly how far away it is. And so we're not used to going out to further limbs, out into risk, out into discomfort, where we have to do stuff that, you know, doesn't feel great in the short term, but in the long term, it pays off because, you know, whether it's doing an ice bucket challenge or whatever it might be, it makes us, basically action is the best salve for climate anxiety. And I'm sure we'll get to that um, in more detail in a moment, but um, going to our edge, Get stepping into action, getting uncomfortable is actually a wonderful aspect of the human experience. And we've lost dialogue around that. We've lost an appreciation of it. Um, so I really like that that appeal to you because I think it does inherently. We don't want to live a life on the couch, tweeting our life away, doing um, online dating and never meeting people in real life and having sex you know, God forbid, um, you know, like we're living this kind of, as I say, connection light, spiritual light, as in L-I-T-E, diet version of our existence. And it is so unsatisfying. Yes, I agree. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what about you? Um, I've been sort of embarking on a journey of working through my own shit <laughs> for the past yep. year. I'm, I'm, coming up on a big birthday and I don't want to be white knuckling through life anymore and reading your adventures and you're just I'm a I'm a fraidy cat by nature everything scares me and just what I enjoyed is just your I don't know if you feel this way but it comes very across just your wild abandon of trust in people and just it's all going to be okay and it's all going to work out you're going to feel crappy it's going you got to sit in it a little bit but we're all here and it's, it's going to be okay. And I just loved hearing your, your adventures, especially just, you know, I didn't have any money, but I just trusted it was going to be all right. And I did. And I'm like, I don't know what that's like. I don't know what that's like to feel that way, but I want to. And um, 
it did, it gave, your book left me with hope. I have trouble reading things like that because about climate change and about the crisis we're in because sometimes it, it leaves me with dread. But this, it was, I loved how you framed, you're not an optimist because that's not helpful. You're not a pessimist because that's not helpful either, but hope because mm. we have to have hope. It's going to be messy. It's going to be uncomfortable, but there is always hope. And I really, really liked that. Yeah, I like that. The, the hope piece is kind of optimism plus action. That's what hope is, you know. Um, optimism on its own is, oh, she'll be right, um, and then you do nothing. Yeah. Um, hope, and especially radical wild hope, is actually action, but in almost a kamikaze, wild, let's abandon the rules and just do this in a way that's real and um, sort of in attunement with our real nature, you know, which is wild, free, um, in congruence with love and connection all driven towards connection um and the formula is so simple once we get rid of all that clutter that holds us back you know and keeps us keeps us scared yes i uh i kind of would echo what they said as far as what i took from the book um as i mentioned earlier you know it's easy to feel anxious and overwhelmed by everything in the world and I guess my biggest takeaway was that I'm not alone and others are kind of going through this existential crisis. Um, and, and that is the reason to work harder, not to throw my hands up and give up, which, you know, a lot, of, I think we've all been there. We're just like, why even try? Um, it, it's, it's a lot to, to think about, but um, I think you did a good job of kind of, you know, bringing people together and showing our collective action can make a difference. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Um, so I'm going to jump into some of the themes that you talked about a lot throughout the book. Um, you, you really went back and forth between um, you you'd talk about, you know, one big topic and then you would throw in a hike that you did or a trip you took and the lessons you learned from that as it relates to that topic, which I really liked because it was kind of a break from, as Chris said, some of the heavier topics. So um, one of the things that stood out to me was this discussion of eco anxiety or eco shame that I think a lot of us feel, especially the more we learn about what's going on in the world and every little thing we do, you know, has an impact um, that you're so afraid to consume anything because no matter what you do, there's there's some kind of carbon footprint attached to it or something. Um, so how, how do we kind of, I guess, work around that feeling and, and what are, I guess, some of your biggest eco-anxieties um, that, that kind of plague you, keep you up at night? <laughs> Yeah, um, I totally understand what you mean. I mean, being a human uh, costs from a carbon emissions point of view. It's just what we are. We're little carbon emitting entities. Um, and that's okay. And the world can sustain us. Um, the good news is every solution to the predicament that we face on this planet in terms of the destruction and the, the, the killing of resources, the extinction of animals, the heating of the planet, every solution exists. Okay, humans, we've invented them all. We don't, we don't need to go and create more and more and more kind of concepts. They exist. What is required is mass mobilization, mass enthusiasm, mass embracing of these ideas. And um, I think that enthusiasm begets enthusiasm. If we show enthusiasm at our own level, it spreads to neighbors, family, outwards it goes. And um, the second piece of optimistic kind of thinking that I throw around in the book is this 3.5% figure of hope. 
um, there was a really big study that was done of every peaceful protest uh, movement from 1904, I think it was, through to 2014. And this woman, Erica Chenoweth, um, she studied them all because she was having a crisis of hope um, at the time. And what she found was that a movement only has to attract 3.5% of any given population, so whether it's a school, a town, a globe, um, for the change to come about. Three and a half percent isn't that much, right? Because once you get three and a half percent, it snowballs. The enthusiasm, the momentum, um, um, et cetera, is too infectious, too large, too noticeable for politicians, industry, et cetera, to face, to ignore. So that's the way I see it. The, the solutions exist. We've just got to implement them really fully. And what's required there is our enthusiasm. I mean, honestly, how good a chore is that ahead of us? We just have to be enthusiastic. We just have to show up. We just have to want this more than anything else. And as humans, it's great. When we love something super hard, we'll fight for it. I mean, I use the example of, you know, the 45 kilo, I don't know how many pounds that is, but not very big, 100 and, what are the, 125 pounds or something. A small mother, you know, um, her toddler has run under a car she can somehow lift this car off the child because she loves that child so much she can find the strength to do it. And that's what I feel about what we face. We've got to remind ourselves of how much we love this planet, how much we love humanity, how much we love our place on this planet. And once we have that in our beings, we will fight for it. And it only takes 3.5% of us to get behind it and then it'll just start to snowball. But we're gonna to have to do this fast. So in terms of our eco-shame, um, we are, are able to have a footprint. We're able to live our lives. and But we also need to do everything we can to fight for these solutions to come about. Now, what I can do, the everything I can do is gonna look different to the everything you can do. For instance, I don't own a car and that's something I'm able to do. I'm a big bike rider. I've set my life up for that. But if you're a, a parent with three kids and you know so on, that's almost impossible. But you can certainly do far less trips and, and the greatest carbon emissions occur with local trips. So anything under five kilometers, walk, get your family to walk. So there's things that we can all do. Um, so my thing is, you start where you are is the first idea. Start where you are. You don't have to be a climate ecologist. You don't have to have, you know, suddenly, uh, I don't know, got rid of the kids out of the house, they've grown up and now you can finally get, no, start where you are. If you're a, a night shift worker who is stressed, blah, 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 you start within that realm. That's, and then you do everything you can. And then that grows and that grows and that grows. That is how the change is going to come about. I just don't think it's helpful to reflect on our shame and our guilt. That exists, but the best thing we can do is actually work through that and not use as an, as, as an excuse to put ourselves under the duvet or the, what do you call it in the US? I think in UK it's duvet. We call it a doona, a quilt. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to use that overwhelming shame and guilt to, to to then avoid having to do anything. And that's what I'm seeing. That's what I see everywhere. So if I can encourage people to not feel guilty, they'll then be more likely to, to uh, activate into action.
Yeah, I love that. Um, I think you say in the book, you can't do everything, but do everything you can. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's where a lot of people get caught up is, well, there's so much to be done. What difference am I going to make? But um, we have to do what little we can. And then collectively, as you said, it it really makes a big difference. And can I add one thing to that in terms of a big part of this piece is also feeling hopeful as individuals, because if we don't feel hopeful, we do nothing right? We, we sink into a seedia and lostness and hopelessness, which is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to humanity right now. The, the actual act of doing everything we can engages us and gets us to our edge, gets us, gets the blood pumping through our veins, gets us connecting with people um, at a community level who are like-minded, where we see other hopeful actions happening. And this is a question I asked towards the end of the book. If we're going to lose everything, then what's left? If we're going to lose the planet that we hold so sacred to us, what's left? And really what's left is connection with other humans. And so the question, or I should say the approach that I take is there is nothing to be lost in doing everything I can. At bare minimum, what time I've got left here on this planet, I'm in my late 40s, um, is going to be spent meaningfully and with full heart and with a commitment to being of service. And to me, that is a wonderful way to live a life, you know, rather than being caught up in a horrible hedonistic treadmill of earning money, spending it, feeling unsatisfied, repeat. So... There is nothing to be lost. There is nothing to there is nothing to lose in this approach. I love the positivity. <laughs> um, that's kind of a good segue for I think what Jen was going to talk about. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, um, I think sometimes we encounter individuals that do feel discouraged that you know their actions won't make a difference. Um, so is there anything that you, like any strategies or techniques that you use to kind of help them flip the switch a little bit? Well, I tell them that 3.5% figure of hope that in fact, it doesn't take too many. Um, and so we do need that three and a half percent. Um, I also tell them that, um, it is actually activism is a wonderful way to live your life. And there's also something that my brother said to me, and I don't know if you remember this bit in the book, my brother Pete, who thinks he can just look at things from a different angle all the time, in fact. And he said, you know, where do you draw the line on not caring? Like, you know, the person who drops the chocolate wrapper in the park, um, you know, is that where they draw their line? Like, I draw a line on where my care starts and stops. Um, that's an exhausting thing to think about. I just think it's worth caring as much as you can. And obviously, then you've got to have boundaries around looking after yourself, having energy for your close friends and family, and also to sustain your health. But I, I sort of think there's this reluctance. A lot of people feel this reluctance to go forward and care. Yeah, and care like their life depends on it because you know what our life does depend on it um and so I just try to make caring look fun and exciting and a far better way to live than scrolling and being a passive liver 
Um, the other thing I think as a salve, once again, is to get people out into nature. And so, Jennifer, you mentioned the, the hiking thing. It's, I, I, I used that as a, a through line for the book precisely because it's such heavy stuff, but also because um, going into nature is actually one of the best salves to all of this because in nature we can see the beautiful way that life unfolds, the patterning, the cause and effect. We see our issues reflected back at us in nature, whether it's in a tree or a beach or the water or whatever. And so the solutions are all there. And so, you know, it's the double whammy, it's triple whammy. It makes you feel good being in nature. You know, the compounds released by trees and water can alleviate stress. And these, you know, it's used as a therapy in South Korea and Japan. It's part of their health policy is to take delinquent children and people with behavioural issues out into nature rather than give them Ritalin. The second thing is it reminds us of the natural order of life and we connect in this congruent way and go, ah, this is, this is how it's meant to go. And then finally we get reminded of what matters to us and then when we care about something so much we'll fight for it. And we are fighting for natural equilibrium with nature on this planet, you know, and with each other. So that's, I often... I just often take people hiking, to be honest. Um, so um, that that can also work. Great. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading your book, I was just like, yes, this is everything that we need to get out into the world. So I really just appreciate everything you've done. And I do have a few little quotes. I, I promised I wouldn't do a whole lot, but it's just what spoke to me. So for, to prepare for the next question, um, some of your quotes was, you know, give more love and mobilize, seek voids and lunge at them, do what your soul is crying out for. So leading up to all of that, how can we start a movement and motivate others to get that 3.5% started towards one mission? Yeah, um, well, I mentioned that before, this idea of start where you are, and I'll just give a little example that illustrates it that might resonate for people. I have a friend called Lucy. She lives around the corner. She's got two nightmare boys. They're very high energy. And during those school strike for climate, you know, those big strikes in September 2019, um, there was a bit of noise happening and people like myself were trying to encourage everyone to get along to it. We we're all thinking we've got to get this to 3.5% globally, you know, and um, and my friend Lucy just went, oh, God, everyone I speak to at my kid's school just says it's too hard. They can't get into the city that day, um, blah, blah, blah. And she said, maybe I should just organise a minibus and then a bunch of us can go. And I went, awesome idea. She, and so she put it up on Eventbrite or, you know, one of those, you know, crowdsourcing sort of ticket systems. And it, she filled this little minibus straight away within a couple of hours. So then she, she rang me. She said, what should I do? And I said, well, book a coach, in, you know, upgrade to a coach. So she did that. Then she ended up filling two coaches and got 150 kids from her and parents, kids and parents to that strike. Now I shared that story on Instagram and it was a day or two before the strike and it mobilized a whole bunch of other parents around Australia to do the same thing. So I'm guessing her small move you know, where she started, where she was, a frustrated parent with little time and resources, um, probably got 500 people minimum to that strike who normally wouldn't have gone. That is how shit happens. You know, it's charming. It's infectious. 
Um, it's not complicated. It's close to home. It's intimate. And I caught the bus back home with them. And I tell you what, they were pumped. The kids, the parents, they had the best day. It was a communal feeling. They felt like they'd achieved something. So I actually, I actually think that those kinds of reminders and examples can, can really work. And to be honest, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're after some prioritizing, um, I know people get caught up about plastics on beaches and there's a whole range of issues circulating. Um, and this is something that I had to learn. It's, it's climate change, i.e. increase in it's carbon emissions. That is our biggest challenge. So if you're really wanting to go to the hoary nub of things, do stuff that is going to reduce carbon emissions. And some of those things are voting with your dollar, changing your investments, your banks and all that kind of thing. And there's some great websites that will give that kind of information. That It's a simple switch. Everyone's making it as easy as possible right now. Um, I think you, uh, voting with your dollar is a great start. Um, also, signing petitions works. I was one of those people that went, how is this possibly going to make a difference? They do. They really do make a difference. Um, and it might even be not necessarily to a politician, but to industry. And industry listens. And the greatest changes that are happening are happening with big business, and in particular, big financial companies like BlackRock um, and so on. They are making the most significant um, dial shifting changes. That's because they've listened to their investors. Investors have signed petitions relentlessly over time. So that kind of stuff really, really makes a difference. So mobilize. And if you see a friend who's trying to get a signature and it takes you only 30 seconds, just do it. If it's something that you can see and you trust that person that they know what they're doing and that it's a really legitimate cause, just do it. Do it, do it, do it. Have it as almost like a spiritual practice. Every day, sign one petition you know whatever it might be dedicate half an hour a day to climate commitment you know and save up various things and once you go in the rabbit hole you get sent more and more information and you and you can't unsee it all and it and it starts to develop a momentum yeah I really like that you brought up the school um, strikes and everything for climate change so uh, one of my questions is is something not like the ice bucket challenge but if we can create a social media movement where people are posting pictures of themselves hugging a tree and they've donated to some sort of charity that supports climate change or planting trees like that was kind of what was going on in my brain when I was reading your book I'm like we need to create a movement behind your book on social media and getting people to to take action with their money somehow so if you have any ideas or want to get something started with us I mean we're ready to roll so. Yeah. Well, my advice on that, and, and hey, I'll take you up on that challenge. Don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll come up with something. And I think the best thing that we can do is actually see there are people in the climate movement who've been doing this kind of thing for like decades in some cases. And I think people's enthusiasm is such that they want to go and start up a new climate charity or a new something or other. And my suggestion is no, don't. Support, yeah. the, support the good profits, you know, and I have that phrase in the book find better profits. And if, if it's Greta Thunberg who is putting herself out there, going to an absolute edge as a 15-year-old, we support them. We don't leave them languishing there on their own. So it actually becomes easier for the rest of us. We, yes, have, we just have to look out for the people who are putting themselves out there and we follow them. 
So I think that that's something that we can, you know, Jen, I'm going to hold you to it. Let's look out for some initiatives that really seem charming, seem to be something that appeals to us. It's got to appeal to us. We've got to make this new way of being more charming than the status quo. Otherwise, humans won't change. So um, let's look out for something that just has some beautiful momentum and we just back it. We get critical mass behind it and we follow the better profits. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, I think we're going to switch over to Chris now. <laughs> um, so just back to your, you've, you've threaded the book with your adventures. I call them adventures because with me, it just, it resonates. <laughs> I'm a big hiker. I haven't gone on um, a solo hike uh, that to, to where it's a few days on end, but I do walk a lot by myself and I find it, I don't know, it's just nice. I guess it's the easiest word to say. It's just nice. It's it's nice to go down to the river and just listen to the water. Um, I like to drag my children with me. They don't, they have this thing that if we're not going somewhere, we're not going anywhere. And um, I get a little, I try not to push them too hard about it, but I liked how you called hiking and that sort of thing, an act of rebellion. It just sort mm -hmm. of was like, I'm, I'm a rebel. Look, your mom is a rebel. Let's go. Um, could you just like, where did that come from? Where did that sort of idea that this is such a, such an easy and what we're physically meant to do. Humans are meant to walk. That's the best. We're, we're best mm. at it. How did yeah. that, where did you come with that, that that was an act of rebellion? Well, at one end of the spectrum, of course, walking has always been a form of protest. Gandhi walked, Jesus walked, um, Martin Luther King walked, you know, people have always walked to make a point. It's sort of almost like a form of sacrifice. It's very visual. You're out on the streets, you know, uh, where people see you. Um, I think in this day and age where we are all in hermetically sealed cars in a rush to get somewhere from usually one pointless thing to another pointless thing, one shopping mall to another appointment that we probably don't need, um, you know, to walk on the streets, to be completely independent, to be master of your own direction and your own mode of transport is sticks two fingers up the system is the way I see it. So capitalism sees us reliant on all of these structures and these things that keep us busy and keeps us sort of distracted and running, running, running. And walking just goes, no, no, that is not how I want to live my life. So there's a couple of things. Walking goes at the same pace as discerning thought. And if there is one thing that we are lacking, and I think is a very big cause of our anxiety today, but also our inability to get through all of these emotions and overwhelm surrounding climate anxiety, um, is an inability, inability to find the time, the space, the languidness to think through to what our moral values are. And walking has always enabled that. The greatest philosophers, thinkers, inventors, political leaders have walked to get clear. And um, so, so walking gets us clear on what our priorities are. And lo and behold, we generally find it's not buying more stuff. Um, so I think it's that. I think also it's got this really sort of almost like renegade flow and kind of secret, um, I don't know, stealth um, abilities or, or, or benefits um, I walk and it turns out 
that I can get, you know, I can get from A to B to C far faster than somebody who's driving and trying to find a park and then having to run to the next meeting because you can never predict how long it's going to take to drive and find the park. With walking, you put it into your map, you know, into Google's, put the walking bit on it. It'll tell you exactly how long it'll take. And you don't have to stop for traffic. You don't have to stop for traffic jams, right? You are master of your own destiny. And um, so, so that's what, the way I see it. And I do think, um, you know, and you also get to see people, you have interactions that the rest of life denies us because we're just so busy and distracted with all the bread and the circuses, as, as they used to call it in Roman times, all the things that are chucked at us so that we do not have a discerning, mindful, ethics-based relationship with ourselves, the people around us and the planet we live on. So that's what I mean by it being an act of rebellion. So when you talk about, so with the act of rebellion of walking, you also talk about deep reading, a good, long, deep read, something longer than 3,000 words. And I really love that. I'm, I love reading. It's one of my favorite things and I do it every day. And so would walking, walking act of rebellion, would also taking the time and doing a big, deep read also be an act of rebellion too. Oh, yeah, because you're taking yourself out of the matrix, the frenetic bye, 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 more, more, more um, matrix, and you're choosing to spend time, and I use the, the phrase soul nerding. You're nerding out on the soul. You're actually spending time, and, and it's not even just about the content that you read. It's also about that, again, applying yourself to a mindful, discerning, calm process unless you're a really crazy speed reader, um, most of us read at a pace, which is also enables us to think through things as we go along, you know? And I generally find most people after they've read something and they haven't had all the distractions of a phone, and I suggest leaving your phone on the other side of the room switched off or on silent when you're doing this kind of deep reading because we are programmed to go and just search a dopamine hit from our phone when we get to a difficult passage or when our eyes get a little bit tired and we don't push through. So I, I suggest doing that so that we apply ourselves in this kind of almost stoic, warrior-like, we're going to just really mindfully push our way through to the finishing line on this because it's an important um, sort of manner. And, um, yeah, it's, again, it's discerning. It's, it's We've chosen. We choose to read something and to learn and to in, engage more so with humanity. I mean, anyone who's written a piece that's longer than 3,000 words, whether it's a beautiful long essay or whether it's a book or prose or whatever it might be, they've put care and a hell of a lot of thought into that. And when you read their words, you then get into that slipstream of care with them, you know, and and that, again, sticks two fingers up to this culture that that stops us from caring from engaging with other beautiful, spiritually still processes. Almost like you have a secret with the author or whoever, you know, you're sharing the secret that nobody else knows about. It's, it's intimate. You're absolutely right. It's an intimate connection, which uh, we're all craving. Yeah. Um, so there's this word that you... I'm going to pronounce it wrong. <laughs> um, solastalgia. Solastalgia. Yeah, yeah. solastalgia. Yep. Terrible existential homesickness from nature. And it reminds me of Thomas Berry when he talked about um, how we are 
you can tell the Western world has lost touch with the universe. We've lost touch and now we're just sort of frazzled and, and running around trying to, but we're just bumping into each other. Could you expand on where the, mm. that there's this grief? How do you, how do we support one another in this grief and this bumping into each other, but not connecting into the soul nostalgia? Yeah, so solastalgia is a word that was developed, I think, probably in the last 10 years by a environmentalist, an Australian environmentalist, but it got picked up in environmental circles because it's just such a wonderful word. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this kind of, yeah, homesickness for our connection with nature. And I think he coined it, his name, name's Glenn Albrecht from memory and he lives actually not too far from where I live um, or an hour or two in Australian terms that's you know up the road mm-hmm. um, and in an area that was being uh, mined really severely back in the 90s and um, he noticed a grief in the community for the beauty of the area all of a sudden it was just stripped and naked and just raw earth and and everything's you know coming out of the ground Um, And I think that's really real. I think the grief that we are feeling, the homesickness, the longing for um, how things were, I think it's deep within us and I don't think it's recognised. I think there's this incredible sadness. I think it's coming to the fore at the moment as we start to reflect on this, and this is something that really stops people when I tell them this, we are going to be reading books to our children going forward about these wonderful animals and these wonderful aspects of human life that will not exist any longer. Koalas on the extinction list, giraffes on the extinction list. There are beautiful animals that were all part of the picture books of our childhood, which future generations are not gonna have access to. They're gonna be these mythological things from the past. And um, I think there's gonna be much grief around that. There's gonna be even more, there's the grief of, of beauty lost, I mean, we are of nature. We emerged with the same patterning of fractal patterning in our retinas as that which is displayed in tidal pools or shells or on the the fronds of a fern. We we have exactly the same sort of um, dimensions and and repetition of, of congruences and we're losing that. And so that's a fundamental disconnect. And I think we are longing for it. And it's a type of nostalgia, which is a Greek word for homesickness. Um, and it is. We, we miss our true home. Yes. Yeah, you can definitely feel it. And definitely, um, it's almost tangible. Mm. Overall collective sadness that we've, we're, we're, we know we're missing something, but we're not quite sure what it is. And it's interesting, isn't it? That's sort of the grief process when, um, for instance, you know, there's, I think they say there's five stages of grief. I think they've added a sixth one in terms of the process that you go through uh, just recently, which is about, you know, when you come out the other end, you've then got to actually derive meaning from this grief process, which I think is really interesting and probably very pertinent to what we're talking about here. But grief is something that, um, you know, many humans cope by pretending it doesn't exist, getting finding it too overwhelming and shutting down, never talking about it again. And of course, that just means it sits there and festers beneath the surface. And I think when we see that what we're feeling is a form of grief, then we can start to deal with it through those really healthy psychological processes 
part of which is facing the truth of it all. And that's hard. But, you know, it's only going to get harder. We're going to have to toughen up. We're going to have to, you know, take a concrete peel going forwards, you know, because um, some, some pretty, pretty kind of full-on sturdiness and resilience is required to face what's ahead. Absolutely. Well, I can show yeah, a little can. bit of hope. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> so I, I work for the federal government and this week they finally sent some emails out and I've been working with them for 15 years and it's like the first time they've word, used the word climate change and that we need to start Woo! taking action and figuring out what we're going to do about it. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> you know, they the always like tiptoed around it. <laughs> Yeah, like they always put like the word sustainability in these executive orders and try to do what we can. But like, this was straight like climate change. We need to take action now. We have a meeting next week. And I was like, finally, sign me up. <laughs> well, that's so, called starting where you are. Whatever they're yeah. asking you to do, if that email appealed to you, and you'll know this phrase from the book as well, it's by James Hollis, who's a wonderful Washington, D.C.-based um, Jungian psychiatrist. And he has a wonderful phrase called, our souls are being called to an appointment with life. And if you get the little tap on the shoulder from life that says, hey, your appointment's up, come on, show up, you've got to show up. And if you don't and you ignore it because of grief, because it's overwhelming, because of whatever, um, that little tap on the shoulder will turn into a shove and then like a complete, you know, um, splain on the ground, which is, you know, anyone who's gone through illness knows how that works. Um, and it's generally, you know, little signs that we need to show up to meet life with where it's, where it's at. Um, you're getting an email. You got excited. Respond to that excitement. Your, your soul is being called to that appointment. Sign up for whatever committee they're asking for. Email the person, this anonymous person, and go, hey, what can I do? I'm 100% in, you know. Yeah, my boss was like, we're going to be asking for volunteers tomorrow. And I was like, oh, just tell them I'm already in. Like, <laughs> I'll do whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Amazing. So, yeah, it's just, I love it's that. good. It's good that the new administration is finally taking oh, action so it's uh amen and look here in australia the world of course has been really um worried about america praying for you all and um i think biden has done the right thing in terms of being very kind of um i mean there's criticisms exactly on exactly on finer points but he's got it's been the optics have been no this is serious signed up to the Paris Agreement straight away, reversed a whole EPA stuff that Trump um, had destroyed, stopped the Keystone Pipeline, a whole range of very visual things that I think brought hope very quickly. Um, and then what kind of follows on from there is great, but I think I think the world needed to see um, that kind of, that, those optics, yeah. It's working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that kind of goes back to what you said about um, doing things, even if other people aren't doing them right, when, mm -hmm. when they say, um, well, so-and-so is not doing it, you know, so why should I do my part? But like you said, when life knocks on your shoulder and says, hey, you're up, you don't look around and say, well, what about, you know, what about Chris or Jen? They're not, you know, doing anything, but you just do what you can when it's your turn and 
Yeah, well, one of the things that I find is quite powerful when I talk about that with people is, is to remind them that that's called being an adult. And I think we've been living in a suspended state of adolescence as a culture for a number of decades. And it's got a lot to do with that indulgent sort of avoidance and cocooning around discomfort. You know, we, we get outraged if we have to wait for anything. We get outraged if there's uncertainty. We get outraged if we're put out of, you know, we've all become Karens, you know, like as per the mean. And so um, I think that, yeah, the, 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 the knock on the shoulder is, is one thing. But what I remind people is that that's called stepping up into being an adult. We don't tolerate a teenager saying, oh, but Johnny doesn't have to have a curfew of 10 o'clock. And it's like, I don't care. This is the way it's going to go, hard enough, you know. And that's what adult adulthood is about knowing the consequences of actions and that's what teenagers go through. But you become an adult when you take responsibility for it even if it isn't your responsibility. And I just hate these arguments of that our, you know, senior, mostly pale, male and stale leaders pull out, which is, well, why should we have to do it if China and India Aren't. Well, I make the argument in the book, well, actually China and India are doing way more than Australia and the United States in terms of climate policy. So let's, let's get that off the table. Plus, we have had, I don't know, 50, 100 years of opportunity to rape and pillage the planet, which is why we are, you know, top of the pile in terms of industrialised nations. We've benefited and we've left this big mess. And the fact that China and, and India are now sort of going, we wouldn't mind a little bit of that, um, you know, we're the ones that did the damage in the first place. And it's going to be these countries that are second world countries that are going to be the most disadvantaged by climate change. Like, let's do the adult thing, you know, let's not be teenagers about it. Yeah, I really liked that analogy in that chapter where you talk about growing up collectively as a society and um, just quitting the excuses, stop deflecting blame, just doing it, doing the work that needs to be done. And being a teenager is a shit experience. And partly <laughs> because we are in this kind of middle space where we know all the problems of the world, but we've kind of not got the energy and the nous and the grit to do something about it, right? And so that's the state we've been in. Let's release ourselves from adolescence and actually fire up and be the noble, hardworking, socks pulled up adults that we want to be. Yes, everybody do that. <laughs> Please. Um, <laughs> yes. The last topic I really wanted to touch on was the C word, capitalism. Um, I was really excited that you addressed this in the book because I, for so long, have been like, I know capitalism's bad. I know it's it's not this great, wonderful thing that people would have you believe, but I can't explain why. I, I've actually had arguments with people and I've, I walked away feeling stupid because I was like, I didn't know how to express that, you know, that feeling that I had that, no, it's really causing all these issues, but you really laid it out, you know, in a way that people can understand and I think actually use it to, to have conversations with others. So um, can you just kind of go through and, you know, what you found and how capitalism is failing us and the environment? Mm. Well, capitalism, like all systems, starts out, you know, as, as generally a way to make the, life, the world better. So 
there was feudalism and a bunch of different horrible ways of going about life and capitalism came in as a way to to fix that and it's done incredible things it's reduced a lot of poverty around the world um and it achieved a bunch of things but like on many systems it's run its course and it has now caused incredible destruction now it's a little bit like a cult and i and i talk about that in the book i make the i get the definition of a cult line capitalism up against it and it fits the the, the description the description um we we pay homage we sacrifice uh, we take out credit card loans and mortgages so that we can um you know keep the beast going um we have an inability to see that there's another way because of course jennifer you'd know when you start criticizing capitalism people turn around and go well you must be a communist and it's like oh for god's sakes there is something in between and communism also wasn't such a bad idea um, in its original um, sense as a, as a sort of a, a socialism. Um, so, you know, we've got ourselves so caught up in it, but the problem with capitalism inherently is it works to this supply demand scenario, which is all very well, except we live on a planet of finite resources. So supplying more and more cheap t-shirts, plastic bags, whatever, is, is a ridiculous concept that we can just keep doing that. Oh, no, but supply, demand, it'll take care of everything. Yeah, but where is it all going to come from uh, eventually? Um, so the US and Australia are both consuming the equivalent of five planet Earths a year at the moment. So that's really, you know, not going to work out very well in the end. Um, so it's just there's a an, there's an absolute um, missing kind of piece in the logic, isn't there? That you know, supply demand's all great. It's going to work everything out. We don't we don't need to have you know um, centralized governments, centralized um, services, and what I call moral umpires because capitalism takes care of, of all of it. Well, humans are also greedy, and some people take more of in that growth uh, that supply demand cycle. Um, and so I think capitalism used to work when we had these moral umpires on the field, where we still had interventionist governments that would ensure that um, health and education was available, equally available to all. Because once you have that, everyone has an even starting life. Um, also, when we had trade unions that would ensure that we worked a nine to five day and we had two days of rest so that we didn't burn ourselves out. And when we had religious institutions as well that would ensure there was a Sabbath that was completely, you know, the shops were shut, we rested on a Sunday. Um, so we had all these things in place that ensured that that capitalist cycle didn't burn us out. But neoliberalism over the last 30 years, which is contemporary capitalism, um, which sort of started with the Reagan era and Thatcher in the UK, where they got rid of all of that centralised government and said the market can take care of it. Well, no, it didn't. Um, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. All of our moral umpires have been eradicated from the field. And uh, our selfish impulses have been left to go rampant. And that doesn't make us happy because we are communal entities. We need to have a sense of belonging and we need it for our survival. Humans are very weak animals. Uh, we don't have fangs. We don't have horns. We don't have poison in our tails. All we have is an ability to have collective action. That is how we survive. Yeah, our brains. That's why our brains got big and our ability to talk and tell story and myth and to create moral umpires that ensure we don't go and eat each other up, you know? 
Um, and so that's why capitalism has failed us. Sorry, I thought I unmuted. Um, one of the biggest uh, frustrations for me, I guess, is, is these people that want unfettered capitalism with no regulation, like you said, no moral umpires, um, and they just think, well, you know, the market will, will, people will do the right thing. And there's so many instances of people not doing the right thing. And half the time, the people that are saying this are people that came up at a time where they had the benefit of those moral umpires, you know, they had the, the regulation and the, and the unions and all these things, um, but now they don't want to implement a living wage or universal health care or um, they want to relax environmental restrictions. And I think that's, but there's a disconnect there, right? Well, you benefited from it. And now you're criticizing us for wanting it. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> mm. I mean, humans are um, both selfish and we're also incredibly wonderful and generous. We've got these two competing urges. And when they're in a healthy balance, humanity does great things. So it's a wonderful thing to be alive when these things are in balance. But we have tipped the balance so that individualism has just gone too far. And we are going to see the demise of humanity if we don't bring that collectivity back into place. We will be eaten alive by nature you know, because we're not using our greatest survival technique, which is an ability to coalesce around the collective and look after. We are only ever as strong as our weakest link. And uh, that's something we've always got to remember. Yeah. And, and we've seen um, some real failures of capitalism recently with um, in, in the U.S. with COVID-19. You know, our healthcare system is atrocious and the lack of healthcare, universal healthcare has really hurt a lot of people at a time where they're losing their jobs, um, their houses, all these things are happening. And, and I know um, just having the ability, like we were talking about earlier, to require people to stay at home, you know, in our country, it's it's very decentralized. It's all about no government regulation. And I think that all stems from, you know, a pro-capitalist, anti-government involvement mindset. Um, Absolutely. And, and it plays out in the environmental movement as well. We are not used to having a dialogue around sacrificing our personal needs for the greater good. And that's just not even part of our vocabulary, our mindset. And it's really interesting. COVID did play, did illustrate that. Countries that had Buddhist and also slightly dictator type um, countries did really well during COVID because everybody just was used to the idea of wearing masks, doing what was required to ensure everyone was safe. Um, and then, and, and by contrast, you have America where it was all about individualism and it's like, how dare you make me wear a mask? You know, I mean, it's the smallest sacrifice for something that, well, science says it works. So, but um, yeah, I think, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting part of the, the debate. And I think it makes people feel a little less personally responsible. It's a systemic issue. But what we can do as individuals is stick two fingers up to it by doing things our way and making it more charming than the status quo. Walking, soul nerding, go hiking instead of shopping. I've got a hashtag on my Instagram, which is hike, don't shop. Because while you're hiking, you can't shop and you can't Go through your Twitter, you know, your Instagram feed. You know, often there's no internet connection. So um, there's a bunch of things that we can do to say, nope, this doesn't suit us anymore. Yeah, and you talk about um, what's called disaster capitalism, where basically political entities are taking advantage of these disasters like COVID-19, um, like the recent snowstorm we had in Texas, and uh, trying to grab more power 
or or even make make environmental movements the villain like in Texas, you know, where he said, oh, it was it was renewable energy that caused the issue when really it was deregulation of the power grid. <laughs> um, mm. So I, I thought that was an interesting uh, point that you brought up about. No, this yeah. is when they try to get you to lax. <laughs> That's really dangerous. Yeah, and capitalism has also really benefited, like the horrible rampant capitalism. So billionaire wealth around the world increased by 27% during COVID, but directly because of COVID. So there was a whole range of different um, investment schemes and, and, and sort of various little opportunities that became apparent while everyone was looking the other way. Um, and and that, that resulted from, um, you know, frontline workers being occupied um, while billionaires could sit back and homeschool their children in, in, in luxury and, and um, sell off a bunch of properties or buy, buy up properties from people who couldn't afford to keep them. Um, in Australia, billionaire wealth increased by 51%. I mean, directly because of COVID. So Australia has, um, yeah, I think a lot of this stuff is very accentuated here, very much accentuated. And we weren't even affected as heavily by COVID, both economically nor at a health level uh, compared with the rest of the world. But there was a whole bunch of financial incentives, a whole bunch of financial opportunities that were kind of shoved in while people didn't notice. The bread and circuses thing. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think capitalism also has this funny thing where it blames the consumer for a lot of the issues in the world. Oh, well, you're over consuming. You're buying the wrong kind of thing. You need to be buying this kind of product or sustainably produced products, um, it, even though they're the ones producing it and they're the ones making it so cheap and pressuring people to buy it. So I, I think there's a whole mindset shift that needs to happen where we stop blaming ourselves and instead say, well, don't make, don't put that in a disposable bottle or, you know, start taking deposits or whatever, like stop don't buy it in the first place. Don't yeah. buy it in the first place. Um, that's my suggestion. I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world. Just stop shopping, just stop, you know, and, and that actually is really powerful. Um, and um, yeah, avoids all that, that, that greenwashing, and you're absolutely right. Um, culture blames the individual, blames the consumer when it suits them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think we've kind of gone through most of our uh, big questions. Ladies, did you have anything else you wanted to throw out there? Nope, I'm just ready to take action. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to discuss before we uh, close things out? Oh, gosh, um, I know that in some of your questions, you are just asking for different resources and for people to, you know, just to maybe off the back of this, this chat, they might feel they want to go and, um, and try a few different things. So on my website, um, if you go to sarahwilson.com, there's a whopping great, this one wild and precious life kind of button that you arrive at. It will take you to a page that has all of the bits and pieces that go with my book. So there's a there's a book club guide if you want to have a climate discussion with a bunch of people, you know, on Zoom or in real life, get yourself a pot of tea and a glass of wine or whatever. And, and I've got this sort of little sheet that you can use as prompters, sort of a little bit like what we've done here. Um, I've also got a list of different apps and resources and, 
and places that you can sign up to to get really good information and start to feel far more soul nerdy on all of this. Um, so yeah, that that might help people if 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 that interests. Yes, that's great. Uh, always want to give people resources and options to connect where they feel like they can make the most difference. So, oh yeah, and I'll, what I'll also throw in is that. You'll notice, I mean, the, my book is extremely dense in, in, or in, in science and various studies and facts and all of that kind of thing, but I didn't bog it down in the print book. And what I do with my books is I have a digital resource of every single book I've read, article, and I do it like that so that you can click directly on the hyperlink. So that is also on that big sort of uh, PDF sheet um, on my site, and you can just do some deeper reading. So if you read part of the book and you're interested in it, you can go and actually find all my resources, the original study or maybe the New York Times article that was super cool that I read and it prompted my thought or whatever it might be. Um, so anyone who wants to go deeper into it, that's I've made it easier <laughs> for everyone. Yeah, I was amazed by the amount of resources you listed and I wrote down, oh, I want to read this book now or I want to check this out. So <laughs> thank you for sharing. Oh, that. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> Um, well, we do something on every show called our green life hacks, and I know basically this whole talk has been one big green life hack, but is there, I guess, one specific thing you would suggest to listeners to do to kind of just help them start living more sustainably or making more of a difference? Um, oh, it's going to sound really boring, but it's like literally don't go to the shops and gamify the process. Um, so you might, I use the example in the book that, you know, I famously own three pairs of underpants. Um, and I sometimes go, look, I should probably go up to the shops and buy a few more pairs of underpants. And then I go, well, look, I'll leave it a week. I'll leave it another week. I'll leave it another week after that. And I go hiking instead on my weekend. And it'll get to literally 18 months later. And I realize I only need three pairs of underpants. Not a great example, but let's just say, you know, it might be a new pair of jeans or this or that. It can actually become quite fun just to see how much you can get done when you don't go to the shop. So a lot of people are decluttering, thinking that that's how they're going to get clarity. Don't declutter. Don't throw anything out. Repurpose it all. Just don't buy anything new wherever possible. Um, so it's extremely simple. And I think some people get a little bit like uh, about it. Um, because shopping is a form of, well, it's a hedonistic treadmill. It makes you think you're, you're, you're happy, um, but it's extremely unsatisfying. Give yourself, run the experiment to see how it feels to not be on that hedonistic treadmill. Run the experiment and see if you can last two weeks, then a month, and then blow it out to 18 months like I do on a regular basis. And you'll see just how much more enjoyable life can be on a weekend. A great one. Definitely <laughs> something I think we all struggle with and um, just it, it's more environmentally responsible. You know, it, there's no downside to not buying as much stuff. So, <laughs> um, Jen, what would you uh, suggest to listeners? Yeah, so I know you mentioned a lot in um, your book and other podcasts that you donate uh, a lot of your proceeds to charity. So I was just going to say, you know, if all else fails and, you know, there's just certain things that you can't do and you feel like you want to contribute in some way, there are a lot of great nonprofits out there. Um, so I guess one of my questions is, is for you, Sarah, which, which charities do you support? 
Oh, well, I choose a charity every six months and I create a project with them. So at the moment I'm working with an Indigenous organisation that creates, that's preserving Indigenous stories around Australia because they're being lost in this country. Um, so that's a project I'm working on at the moment. Every six months, like I say, I do a different project. Um, but if you're wanting to find really great causes, I would say attach yourself to some of the newsletters and the various kind of places that I recommend where this information comes in. Um, so I would look for charities that are very, very engaged and established. And secondly, those that are targeting climate change solutions, um, because I think that's the exciting area. Um, and also have a think about investing in green energy projects. I mean, I'm looking at a seaweed project at the moment that's producing, taking local seaweed from down in Tasmania and turning them into these little pills that you feel, feel, feed cattle and it basically reduces their methane gas to zero. So um, there's just little fun things you can do. It actually can be investing, you know, and I think the divestment from um, certain areas into new areas can be a great way to do it. But Look, I, I, it's hard because I live in Australia. I think going with local is really important. Support that which you relate to, that has a story that you go and want to be in part, part of this. You know, the, it's got to be charming. We've got to enroll through feeling good. Um, so that's what I would do is join Facebook groups. Join, um, just look out for those things. Follow the climate newsletters on the New Yorker, um, the Guardian, the New York Times, and a really good one is called Heated by an American woman, I've forgotten where she's based. Um, but if you look up Heated, um, she, Emily Atkin, she's um, regarded as one of the best climate journalists in America. And she's in her early thirties and she's awesome. So I would follow her and see what she's doing. Great, thanks. And Chris, what about you? What's your green life hack this month? Um, so in the book, you talk about the drawdown and that the number three thing that we can do is uh, reduce our food waste. So for years now, um, and it's the easy thing, you grab a, a scrap piece of paper, just make a grocery list. If you're going out and you need something, even if you just you forgot two items, write them down, stick to your list then that stops you from impulse buying, especially when you're near the till because they have all the, the lovely goodie mm -hmm. and impulse stuff there. Um, so make yourself a grocery list. Um, sometimes like we have a big whiteboard in our kitchen and it's the kids participate too. If we run out of something, write it down and then I'll take a picture of it and then take it with me. Also um, meal plan. Now meal prepping is a whole thing and I can't so I just do dinners I just plan dinners for the whole week and I just stick to the dinners but it stops me from buying things and having the best intentions with food like oh, I'll totally eat this and then it goes bad because I've forgotten about it or I can't think of anything to make with it because my cooking skills are about this big so uh, meal plan dinner planning or pick up whatever meal you like to make um dinners because you know family um, and then grocery lists and that has saved us and me stress stress relief and a lot of food waste because I'm not buying anything that we don't need and don't like and if and if I've trying a recipe I only buy what's in the recipe I don't I won't venture out too far from that <laughs> well if I can add to that and help you out there Chris and um, and it sort of answers 
Jen's uh, question at the same time. As you know, all my proceeds from I Quit Sugar continue to go to these charity projects. Um, and um, I've got a book called Simplicious Flow, which was the first zero food based cookbook in the world in the sense that the making of it was zero food based. But every single recipe in there is basic. There's 300 and I've got it, my computer resting on 348 um, zero waste recipes. And it's full of hacks. The book's this thick. I'm showing everybody about an inch and a half. And um, you can buy the digital version at iquitsugar.com, which is the site where all my money goes to charity. So um, Simplicious Flow, there's the digital book. It's got all the hacks. And I work with a very limited set of ingredients. So you buy a bunch of ingredients and you're going to be able to make most of the things in the book and the index for instance is by ingredients so you look up eggplant you look up whatever it might be and it'll tell you where you can find the recipes for that but nothing is wasted no broccoli stalk uh etc and i show you what to buy organic what you can get away with not buying organic how to make 14 meals out of one chicken etc so that might help that sounds awesome <laughs> <laughs> definitely um, well, my, my hack this month is just um, also something from your book, which is to walk more. I am an avid hiker, but I don't hike as much in the winter because it's just miserable. Even if, even though it's Texas, it still <laughs> gets really cold. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of difficult to walk places where I live because things are so spread out and we don't have um, very good mass transit, but I think you know, if I'm able to walk down to the store or, or whatever, um, I'm going to try to do that more and just enjoy nature while I'm out there. You know, a lot of times you go for walks and you just kind of get from A to Z, but I want to actually be more present and be able to notice what's around me and think more, be alone with myself, like you said in the book. So, Yeah, beautiful. Look up. Keep looking yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Sarah, where can folks find you online, order your book, um, learn more about you? You know, I know you're on social media. Do you want to share all of your links? Sure. Um, SarahWilson.com is where you'll get sort of all the various assets and it's pretty easy to go and find where you can buy the book there. I've also got a little rundown of which stores are offering discounts in the U.S. I like to do that. Um, so you can go to there. Um, but it's available in all stores online. Um, that's this one wild and precious life. And then on Instagram, I if you type in Sarah Wilson, it comes up because I've got one of those little blue dots next to my name, but it's underscore Sarah Wilson underscore if you want to be specific. And I do most of my sort of climate stuff on there, I suppose. Also on Facebook, but yeah, I like Instagram. It's a nice positive forum. Great. Um, yeah, definitely go check that out, order her book and check out all of her other books and cookbooks. I'm excited to look into the one you mentioned. Um, Chris, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me here um, and over at Epically Geeky and Marginally Geeky. We just uh, had an episode come out where we talk about the five love languages and on Creatively Geeky and on Instagram at Rose and Hummingbird. And Jen, are we still the exclusive uh, rights to you? No other? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> awesome. You can find me here at Sustainably Geeky. Great. And I'm, uh, of course, 
on uh, most of the shows that Chris mentioned and uh, Het's going to be me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can find our show on all three platforms as well and anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So um, if you haven't subscribed or rated us, please do that. We appreciate your support. Again, Sarah, thank you so much for being on. And um, we really appreciate your, your time and hope your book does great. And um, everybody else, you know, gets as much out of it as we did. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and stay warm over there. And I hope you're coming into the new season. I think I hope it brings much more health um, to your country. Lovely Thank chatting. You. Thank you so much. Nice meeting you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network.